Hey, Beth here. Just before you start, this show looks at domestic abuse head on. This particular episode uncovers Roy's experience of going through the family law system, but it also documents her slow release from the grips of his abuse as she stands boldly as a survivor. It can be quite heavy at times, so be gentle with yourself, listen with care, and know that support is readily available for any unpleasant feelings that might come up. Check out our website for a list of people you can speak to if the going gets tough. In Australia, there is a small but distinguishably loud group of people who claim to be doing one thing, leveling the playing field when it comes to how we make sense of gender equality. They meet innocuously, often in dowdy city pubs across Melbourne and Sydney, passionately sinking lager and intent on liberating men from the so-called shackles that oppress them in the family court system. With each heated sigh and angry comment, with each court case, they feed into a long-contested myth that fathers are hard done by when made to verse mothers in family court. That men are deprived of their children, of their livelihood, and are instead pronounced unfit due to their arch nemesis, often a wife, a girlfriend, a female family member's warped account of their behavior. They are referred to as Australia's Men's Rights Association, and they are made up of myriad individuals, each with their own sordid reasons to pit men against women. Their bulletin boards consist of chilling hyperbole, with links to unfounded and poorly articulated articles about how women kill, maim, hurt those they love. They stand before panic-stricken mothers in sterile waiting rooms, booming angrily, strangers with spit angrily lodged in the corners of their mouths. They claim that women make up scandalous tales, accusations of violence and terror, that they equip their impressionable children with the weapons designed to destroy the reputations of their hard-done-by fathers. Before me, they stood at the family court hearing I had attended in an attempt to protect my children. They stood before me, with him, heedless to my wounds, my misgivings. They were so loud. family court system is extremely re-traumatising for women who have been victims of domestic violence. That is Samantha Jeffries, an academic at Griffiths University, whose work centres around how the court system in Australia often re-traumatise survivors seeking justice. And I think it's particularly so because I think a lot of women who have been victims of domestic violence believe, I think naively, when they go into that system that that system is about protecting them and protecting their children in particular. And, and it's not set up that way. The family court system is a patriarchal system that was created for men by men. So it cannot respond appropriately to the experiences of women who have been victims of gender-based violence. It's just not set up that way. They're not getting justice. How do you feel about them being their lawyer? My lawyer asked kindly. 
What I felt was anger. First, an anger laced with confusion, with defeat, coupled with their blind insistence when it came to supporting a man they didn't know. They forgot about one essential aspect to the story, to my story, the truth. They had formulated their own story, where my abuser was preyed on in the family court system in virtue of his manhood, was made absent in the life of his children, and had come to even fear this. The same children he exposed to brutality, to violence. He was the victim. He was the survivor. In their eye, he was a man who had every right to fear his rights being taken. And I? I was the feared subject, the catalyst, his undoing. As far as I could see, the men's rights movement were a group of alienated fathers with a clear, albeit confused, vengeance. They convinced men that they had something to fear, reason to panic for a future that undermined their capacity to control us. Men's rights activists, if you actually go on their websites and have a look, the rhetoric or the narratives that come out their mouth reads like perpetrators of domestic violence. It's the same sort of narratives. They had blood on their hands. Seen especially in the 1999 trial and sentencing of Robert Clive Parsons, who murdered his ex-partner Angela outside the Dandenong family court, yelling, it's over, bitch, it's over. He had been seduced by the men's rights group, Parents Without Rights, and his fear of his own undoing resulted in hers. Men will use the system to continue to abuse her. A woman walks into a family court, she's considered to be dishonest, as vindictive, and is trying to fracture the father-child relationship. And for a woman in that, it's gaslighting, systemic gaslighting of victims of domestic violence. There's no, absolutely no evidence anywhere including the US, the UK, here, to suggest that the family court system is biased against men. It never has been. What the evidence shows is that it's biased against women. It's the complete opposite. Still, the people who carry my blood, my name, my drive to live would not have their truth taken from them. What was far louder and continues to be than the bellowing hatred spurred on by men's rights activists is the truth is my truth, a shared truth. And the fear I knew was one unimaginably different to his. In 2016, Olga Edwards, a passionate yogi and kind-hearted mother, began family court proceedings against her ex-husband, John, a man who posed a clear undoubtable risk to his family. The court was notified about his regular assaults about how he kept a machete under his bed, the vigilance he practiced in instilling fear into the space he occupied with his partner and children. Olga feared that she'd arrive home one day to find her teenagers killed. And on July 5th, 2018, exactly that had happened. John had obeyed the trajectory he had drawn out for himself and had made a mockery of the men claiming it a kind of a red herring. I want to ask them, the men's rights activists, I want to ask them, what are you scared of? In what way does fear occupy your mind? 
What color is it? Where does it live in your body? Help me understand the way it wraps itself around you in the dead of the night. Help me understand the way you sleep, if so terrified of the grave injustice you apparently lay witness to. I want to scream. Help me understand you. In describing the moment Olga realized her children had been taken from her, state coroner Teresa O'Sullivan stated in an interview with Guardian Australia, this moment, that being Olga returning from work, was the crystallization of the fear she had harbored as a victim of domestic violence. What if this violence is inescapable? What if it's just, you know, taken for granted that women from my particular part of the world, from my cultural heritage or who look like me, will live live through multiple violent experiences that, you know, are beyond our control? And that's a really unsafe way to feel. And that's a very difficult and complex form of trauma to begin to deal with. You just heard from artist, writer and women's health and safety advocate Amani Haider as she reflects on what it meant to lose her own mother at the hands of her father. This is not an inevitable thing. This is a social issue. It's a political issue. And these are deliberate forms of violence. It's not a mystery how they take place. We don't have to take it for granted. And there is work that we can do continuously, not just me as an individual, but as a community, as a society that can challenge the different forms of violence that we we witness all the time and patriarchal violence and colonial violence occur on the same continuum and if we're going to challenge it locally then we should be challenging that globally as well. In every house I have ever stayed in, in every home I have ever shared with my children, I have charted my whereabouts, mapping exactly how it is someone could, if they so wish, enter could come in and destroy everything I love. I would posture my small body towards the nearest door so that if, God forbid, someone did enter, he did enter, it would be my body on the line first. In the time that it took for him to punish me, for his anger to find itself nestled in my limbs once more, my body, they'd be able to run far, be able to jump and hide and save themselves. That is fear. I want to ask these men if they've ever imagined themselves slain, if they've ever made sense of themselves as something fragile and fleeting. I am combination of over-the-shoulder chicks and conventional sleeping patterns, the shuffling of keys between clammy fingers. I am all of this and still a survivor. I want to ask them too, have you ever had the opportunity to, amongst the world of terror, imagine your after? Have you ever been able to let your fingers graze over the scars you carry, the same scars that emerge from a blanket of flames, the smell and the heat since forgotten? Have you ever done this, and instead of feeling dread and fright, you feel something akin to pride? Pride with every slight elevation of skin, every slight swelling, Pride as in a feeling that captures something both gentle and strong, a little like yourself, 
Have you ever watched your children grow into kind, loving adults to emerge from a complex shared history knowing well that despite it all, you protected them tirelessly and continue to do so? Exactly the way you did the moment everything changed. That is and always was your proudest achievement after all. Have you ever danced freely on a colorful dance floor surrounded by an eclectic group of dotting friends, high on survival and survival alone? Have you ever woken some mornings and over tea and toast forgotten for a moment of the afflictions you've faced because pain? Something slow and unrushed fades as it ought to. Pain changes. Have you ever seen yourself in the jaded eyes of desperate woman, clutching a hold of her sweaty hands as she looks down the barrel of an unknown future, cornered and anguished? Have you ever seen that future and warmly invited them to take the first step? That future, as in that after, and ushered them softly in the direction, knowing well that one day, day, like you will find hopes where there once wasn't any, will find love where they were once deprived, will find desire where desire wasn't permitted. I don't do anything now for the woman that you see before you. I base my experience and my education stuff on the woman that was running from this man, you know, for 15 years, like on this merry-go-round. The basis of what I do is to let women know that there's help out there, that they're not alone, that it happens, that, that domestic violence doesn't discriminate, doesn't matter if you're black, white or brindle, doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, it happens in every town, state, city, country in this world, and that the violence that they may be going through is not their fault. I think there's some appeal to, to the idea that we can grow from and recover from trauma in a way that honours the lives of the people that we've lost, honours the things that we've inherited and sort of celebrates them rather than shunning them. So I really worked hard to reconnect with the parts of my heritage and my childhood that were wonderful and that I valued and that deserve to be carried on to the next generation. And some of that, you know, was some of those things seem kind of trivial. I talk about, you know, um, crafting and making things and looking after plants and doing care work and being outspoken about social justice issues those things were really huge parts of my grandmother's character and my mum's character and I think they're really amazing important tools for resilience that I've been able to integrate into my work into my creative practice and into my writing and I think they really drive a lot of what I do and give me the energy to keep doing it. I'm forever grateful that I'm here, like I'm alive and I'm well. And my thing is I've got five grandchildren and I don't ever want them to think that they can't be and do whatever they want. And nor do I ever want them to think or have the belief system that if something happens to them, nobody will help and nobody will believe them. So that really is the basis of why I do what I do. So that people know that I'm here, that I will believe them, that I see them, that I hear them and that I know what that feels like. I think they're all parts of my my understanding of how we can inherit resilience and inherit joy and inherit our coping mechanisms and apply them to make a better world for our kids and pass them on. 
My name is Roya Atma, and in my after, I made it a mission that other women find proof of their own. Proof that there is no uncomplicated route, that fear and shame lives in the most dubious of places, even still. That abuse does not end with the last lighting of a match, with the last foul insult, with the last blow of a man or a tin as they stand on the dusty steps of a court. The same court where women wanting nothing more than justice stands, holding space for any semblance of pride they can muster. Women that fight for their very own after. My name is Roya Atma, and I want to leave you with this. Survival doesn't end either. Hope is just as strong, just as mighty, just as powerful as fear. So when I ask them, what are you scared of? I know the answer. They're scared of me. They're scared of survivors. They fear us. Our strength, our insistence, our willingness to wear our story with pride. And to be honest, if I were them, I'd be scared too. My name is Roya Atma, and this is my after. I want to thank Samantha Jeffries and Amani Haider for their contributions to this episode. This season is supported by Victorian government through Creative Victoria and UNESCO Melbourne City of Literature and is kindly sponsored by the Victorian Women's Trust, an advocate for violence prevention, fair wages for equal work and equal representation of women, men and gender diverse people in the decision-making process that shapes our lives. A heartfelt thank you to our production team who brought my story to life. Shakira Hossein for her careful sensitivity editing, Danae Gibson for her gentle support in recording, and John Chiha for his masterful ear as our sound engineer. You're listening to Tenda, a Broadway production about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. This season is created by Madison Griffith, Bet Atkinson Quinton, and me. Roya Atmar. Thank you for listening to my after. Broadwave. 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 Broadwave.